powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hi there, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Please. Thank you, everyone. Please sit. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for that amazing welcome. I absolutely love and cherish every member of my virtual audience. So, yes, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right. I'm Derek. We are back after a Memorial Day vacation. And, man, are we coming back and swinging for the fences. While we did release a few pre-recorded episodes of the month of May, your beloved host here got some time to recharge, reconnect with family and friends, take a few mini vacation trips, and basically just unwind. We have so many amazing interviews, though, lined up, and I promise you some of these are going to leave you in complete awe. So a bit about what's going on with me. Well, yesterday I had an anniversary of my 20th year as a United States citizen. It's been a wild and crazy ride from that courthouse in 2002, but I am glad I get to call America my second home. In other amazing news, my football club, Nottingham Forest, believe me, our family is entwined with the club's history in the 80s, finally shook off the cobwebs and have put themselves back where they belong after over 20 years, the English Premier League. It was a nerve-wracking game, and while I do feel bad for that guy's auto goal, hey, I'm glad we got the win and we are back where we belong. In other amazing football news, Wales today overcame the sure fix, in my opinion, and won a spot in the World Cup by defeating Ukraine. I cannot believe we'll be in the actual World Cup. It's been since 1958, but I think we are overdue for a good run. So welcome to episode 59. That's right, this one, folks, <laughs> this one is one of my Mount Rushmore interviews, and I've had to sit on this one for a lot longer than I personally would have liked, but with today being June the 6th, and of course June the 6th being today the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, we have on the show 97 years old veteran Bill Parker. Now, not only is Bill a World War II veteran, folks, he was the first man to set foot on Omaha Beach in Normandy. I mean, that's incredible, right? Anyway, this episode will be presented uncut and without break. So let's get right on into it. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome an American hero, a member of the greatest generation, direct from Tulsa, Oklahoma, World War II veteran, Mr. Bill Parker. Good afternoon, Bill. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. This is indeed a great honor for me. How has the weather been out by you today? Weather's pretty nice here. 78, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a good day. I always start my interviews with the same question, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's kind of slowed everything down. Kind of hard to get used to not going to the grocery store or anywhere you want to go, you know. 
Yeah. Didn't go with the Westerns much. Didn't go to a few rodeos I'd have went to if it hadn't been here. Yeah, it affected me quite a bit. Every journey has a beginning, and unlike the majority of my guests, we go nearly 100 years back. Where were you born, and what was it like growing up? Torrance, California. Well, I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Oklahoma. Well, I had the good of life as a person could want in Oklahoma. I had a good horse, a good saddle, and a good girlfriend. Dad didn't keep me at home too much. Yeah, I had a good life when I was growing up as a teenager. Tell us what it was like to grow up in the Great Depression. Just being a big old kid, it didn't affect us too much. It did mother and dad. We didn't have nothing. The weather was hot, the wind is hot, and that is doing the dust storms. All things would get too bad back there. Why daddy catch a freight train, go to California and work in the oil fields, make a little money and come back home and make another crop, you know. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it'd burn up. Yeah, it was a pretty bad deal back then. For me, being a big old kid with a good horse, I didn't mind it much. So with all this going on, were you aware of what was going on in Europe during the 1930s? No, I didn't even know where Europe was. First thing I heard was about any of that. I was on a country road going to see my girlfriend when I was 16 years old. Went by a house. One of the women lived there, one of her daughters ran out and told me they bombed Pearl Harbor. And I said, well, where's Pearl Harbor? She didn't know either. And I said, well, what is Pearl Harbor? Well, she didn't know that either. No, we didn't know nothing about the world at that time. What was your reaction when you got your draft notice to join the Army? I got drafted just before I got out of high school. At 18, and Dad went down and got me a deferment for a month so I could finish school. School was out in June and July. Why I, I got another call and was in the Army in sometime the last of July. So what was your MOS when you finally joined the Army? <laughs> Never was in anything but the infantry. We just learned what the infantry do. First thing they done when I went to, well, I went to Fort Sill, and then they shipped me on down to Camp Walters, Texas. First thing they done down there was take me to rifle range to see if I could shoot a gun, shoot a rifle, they called it. They handed me an M1 rifle with a clip and showed me how to put it in it. Another man run up a big white sign out there, looked like a man. And they said, well, shoot him. I asked them where at, and they said, well, shoot him in the heart. And I said, well, I don't know where his heart is. So he said, same place yours is. Anyway, I shot it, shot this clip up, and shot it in a round about four inches around. It, nearly every bullet went in the same place. When it got done shooting, he said, well, that's a good shooting. And I said, well, all right. And he handed me another clip, and he said, well, shoot it again. Had this man put up another dummy out there. 
and I put the rifle up to my shoulder, and he said, no, you put it to your right shoulder. I shot left-handed all the time. So I told him, I don't shoot right-handed, I shoot left-handed. He said, you shoot right-handed now, you're in the Army. So I had to learn to shoot it right-handed after I got in the Army. And besides that, why it was just marching and crawling on your bellies and throwing hand grenades and getting in shape mostly. You ended up in the 116th Infantry, 29th Division. What was the camaraderie like in that unit? <laughs> well, you really don't didn't get to know anybody. There'd be one or two that was, uh, well, cowboys. I was a cowboy. I got acquainted with them. Can't remember their names hardly now, but uh, mostly, though, why we were friends, but we didn't get close friends. When were you told about Operation Overlord? I didn't even know what it was. I just knew we were training for the invasion of France. We all knew that. So the legend goes that you were the first man to set foot on Omaha Beach. Is that true? That's true. What do you remember first on the way to the beach? What I remember hearing first was them big shells were busting right up beside her head. Them, they started shooting at us before we got off the landing craft. It was uh, hitting in the water, hitting all around us. Of course, as we went across the beach, uh, I was the first man off of that landing craft because I was the leader of the war cutting section. And I had a Bangalore torpedo that's about six foot long, three foot around with dynamite in the middle, amatol on each end. And I went across that beach to, with a machine gun hitting the ground right in front of me, about three feet just knocking up the sand. Mm. And I couldn't go back because there wasn't nothing but water back there. And I couldn't go any faster forward because I was loaded. So he never did hit me. By your recollection, how long did it take to take Omaha Beach? I really don't know. Uh, <clears throat> the beach was at length of two football going fields away from, across from the sand. And we had to go across all of it and did. And we got up to the banks while we had to fight the Germans on the bank, but we had their machine guns still shooting, and we didn't have anything at all to knock them out with. We were doing good with the men on the bank. We wouldn't have much trouble with them. We was laying in water on our bellies about waist dump sand that was about a foot high. I heard later that uh, we just couldn't go, you know, on account of the field boxes, but I heard later the Navy man out in the ocean saying we had hung up. He brought the battleships in close to shore and said he had shoot over our heads way over, but he lowered them big guns and he shot about six or eight feet over our heads, knocked the pillboxes out. So that turned the invasion loose where I was at. And anyway, we went on in. I don't know how far that day, but we were in Hedgerow country, and we was in two or three miles in Henderson when dark come. The night of June the 6th, 1944, after the initial invasion, what happened next? 
at dark come why I was a private. We didn't have any any officers with us, any non coms. We was all just privates. And I had about twenty to thirty men following me that was uh, all from my division and from the first division and anywhere else that they'd got lost. So what what are we going to do now? And I told him, I said, Well, I'm going to stay right here till daylight. And I did. When daylight come, why, I was about out of ammunition, and the rest of them were too. And I went back to the beach to get ammunition because I knew all those dead men had ammunition. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I got it off of them because my mind won't let me remember that. But I did get the ammunition, come back with them and those 20 or 30 men are still waiting and then we went i think north up to about what they called a sunken road we'd have called it a ditch maybe a little water in it but they'd been a big fight there there was lots of dead germans lots of dead americans and burnt out equipment and anyway we went up that road to a little town called Vereville, Samir, France. When I got there, why, there was a captain or lieutenant, I don't know what he was. He looked at me and he said, Sergeant, put your men in that hole. We're going to take this town. I said, all right, but I'm not a sergeant. I'm a private like the rest of these men. He said, well, you are now. And from that time on, I was a sergeant. We took Verville Samir, went on and helped take Zant Lowe. After that, we all got back with our regular units. In the weeks after D-Day, what do you remember going from town to town? We just started fighting from one hedgerow to the next. And sometimes it would be from one hedgerow to a farmhouse or something. But we fought all the way across France. It was a fight every day. Every day we lost men and we got replacements at night. All those fights were just about the same. You got had to do lots of shooting and kept them moving. Anyway, one fight that uh, still bothers me why we were attacked that morning. And by that time I was a platoon sergeant and I got uh, men in replacements at night and there was a boy in these replacements that looked like he is 15, 16 years old. I guess he was 18. But anyway, he looked so young, I didn't know what to do with him. Anyway, I told him to stay with me and be my runner. I had a foxhole dug that uh, I said, put your stuff here and get in that foxhole and get some rest because we're going to attack in the morning. And we did the next morning. But my platoon was in, well, was behind. We had to stay back until the others, and they were supposed to come back and let me know when to move up, which they didn't. And I went up to see why they didn't. They had moved across the road, which got hung up with fighting over there. Anyway, when I got back to my foxhole, why, there was a 
cell that hid in it and blowed this kid's head off. I don't even know what he looked like. And that bothered me that I kept him there and still does. But that's just part of war. Do you remember the winter of 1944? <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget it. The main thing I remember about it, besides being so cold, was seeing wounded men sit down by a tree and freeze to death. And that's why they with icicles hanging all over them. It was cold. It was rainy, sleet and snow, mud. Yeah, it was a terrible winter. I hear you have a great story about how you met General Dwight Eisenhower. Well, as up on the front line and in the mud, it'd been a sleeting and snowing. We was all wet. They come up and got a few of us and took us back behind the line, said there was some general back there wanted to meet us. And we lined up and he come down the line. It was General Eisenhower shaking hands with us and doing a little bit of talking. When he got to me, why? And he said, where are you from? And I said, well, Oklahoma. And he said, why, we're neighbors. Said, I'm from Kansas. Of course, I knew that. And they said, well, anything I can do for you? I said, yeah, you could trade overshoes with me. Mine was full of mud. And he just began taking his off. He had some of the AmeriCorps deals with all lined, you know, good inside. And I stopped him. I said, no, I didn't mean that. Uh, yours would be just like mine. And he said, uh, well, if there's anything I can do for you, you let me know. I don't know why in the world I didn't tell him to get me out of this mess. <laughs> I didn't. But that's the way I met Eisenhower. I thought he was a nice fellow. My dad is always a Democrat. When he run for president, why well, I talked him in notion voting for Eisenhower. We got him in. Yeah, I thought he was all right. Do you remember where you were when the Nazis surrendered in May of 1945? I have no idea exactly. I didn't even know when they surrendered. What I do know was if I'd crossed the river, I thought it was the Ebb River. Somebody told me the other day it was the Ruhr. So I don't know which one, but I met the Russians on the other side, and they were jumping up and down and dancing and had women with them and they was drinking and and i think the war must have been over that day because we were still fighting the germans and we did for two or three days before we found out it was over so that's that's about all i know about that did you end up keeping anything from the war yeah i uh, Kept a few things. <clears throat> Mostly, I've got uh, I've got my six shooter that I carried, forty five six shooter, not a not an automatic. I uh, got it from a tank corps man. Evidently, they issued some tank corps way back there six shooters. Uh, this uh, tank man jumped out of his tank when we were attacked in one morning and 
said there was men run into that dugout there. Would I help get him out? And I said, yeah, would it do that? We went in and got him out. And I had a pistol that I'd picked up at the French house called the 3220. I learned that if I'd cut a little bit of lead off of a 30 caliber carbine shell that like officers carried, that I could shoot it in that gun. So that's what I used in that dugout. But when I come out, this Bancor man said, boy, I'd like to have that gun. And I said, well, I'd like to have that 45 you've got. Mm-hmm. And he traded with me. And I took that gun and I carried it on my hip, just like John Wayne does in the movies, <laughs> all the way across France, Germany, Holland, Belgium. And got in trouble a little bit with it. One time he was a smart lieutenant. He wanted to know if that gun was regulation. I told him I didn't know what it was or not. Was up on the front line. I didn't see where it made any difference. But I said, why don't you ask General Patton? He carried two of them. He never (laughs) said no more. (laughs) I went into a building one night just getting dark. And to clean it out, because we needed someplace to stay all night in, I went in to see, and I saw a big man down in the silhouetted against the window, and I hollered at him to put his hands up and turn around, and he didn't. I hollered at him again, and he didn't move. And I up and shot him with this forty-five. shot his head off, I went down to see what I'd done, and I shot Hitler. It was a chalk bust of Hitler. <laughs> Hitler. <laughs> and my men, men, they would never forget that. Every time they got a chance, they said, this is Sergeant Parker that shot Hitler. Shot Hitler. <laughs> nice. Since the end of World War II, have you ever returned to Normandy? No, I have never been back. I may go this summer in June, though, if everything goes all right. It's been over 70-plus years since the end of World War II. Has your opinion of the Germans changed since then, or is there a lot of anger or resentment? Well, the SS troopers, why well, I hated the SS troopers. They were different, you know, than just a regular soldier. In some interview I had, why... I guess I said I hated the Germans because later on after the war was over, well, not too long ago, there was a German woman called me from Germany and said she wanted to straighten me out on the German people. And I said, well, all right. She said she was 15 when I was 19 and landed on the beach and said she had to, was a prisoner in Germany because they took her. She wasn't old enough to work in the factories, but they made her work in hotels and motels and sweep floors, things like that. Wouldn't even let her go home. And she said the German people didn't want to fight us any more than we wanted to fight them. So she got to talking. I told her, well, lady, 
I don't hate the Germans now. So I'm glad she called. Now, it is my understanding that after the war, you never told a soul about your role in World War II. How long did it take for you to open up about it and why? (laughs) In 2016. We never talked about it. We never told nobody about it. Nobody asked us about it. I didn't tell my daddy nothing about it or my mother. I didn't tell my wife. And nobody asked about any, and we were trying to forget it. 2016, why, just before 4th of July, it was coming out in the newspaper here in Tulsa, and every time they put somebody in it, was the Army, was the Navy, Marines, Air Corps men, artillerymen, something like that. Finally, it kind of aggravated me, and I seen this fellow's name down under there, Tim Stanley, with a phone number. I just went in and called him, and he answered, and I didn't say hello or nothing. I just said, why don't you put somebody in there out of the infantry? And he didn't say nothing for a little bit. And finally, he said, well, I don't know any, do you? I said, well, I know one. And he said, well, what did you do? I said, well, I was the first man on bloody Omaha Beach. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, because there wasn't no dead man in front of me. Hmm. And he said, well, I won't talk to you. Made appointment, come out about noon. Said his interviews lasted about... uh, 45 minutes or hour, had a photographer with him. And at 4.30 that evening, the photographer told him, said, we got to go. We got another appointment. That's when I began talking about it. When the war was over, what did you do when you transitioned back to being a civilian? Well, the first thing I'd done was get married. And the best thing I'd done. I had a girlfriend when I left at 18. We went to school together. Of course, that's another story, too. We, nearly all of the 18-year-olds that had girlfriends was getting married and then going on to war. And we wanted to, but I told her no, that I didn't want her to be a widow at 19. And that's probably what had happened. So we waited until I come home which was two years. She wrote to me nearly every every week, and I wrote to her back when I could, telling each other how much we loved each other, and we did. And I'd come home in October, and we got married in December. And there no two people ever had a better life than we did. Aw, that's incredible to hear. You don't hear that much these days. All right, so when I told folks that you were coming on the show, almost everyone had the exact same question they wanted me to ask you. And if it's okay, I'm going to go ahead and ask it now. And the question is, have you seen Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, I've seen that. I didn't know that it was about the 29th Division until I seen the patch on one of them fellas' shoulders, and it had that blue and gray patch on it. That's when I began to know that it was uh, was about the 29th. 
it was, uh, I'm going to say that the, at least the first part of it was practically just like it was. It was good movie. I'd like to see it again. I don't remember things that I hear some of these other people talk about it, but uh, maybe one of these days they'll show it. Yeah, I think it is pretty well correct. You are 97 years old, and you incredibly still live a very active lifestyle. What, sir, is your secret? <laughs> yeah, staying busy. I had to work hard all my life. I've done a lot of things to make a living, but mainly I was a cowboy. War hadn't come along. I'd have been an RCA bull rider and a champion because I could ride a bull. I uh, began riding them when I was about 15, going to rodeos when uh, nobody had any money. They didn't. We didn't have anything to pay entry fees like they do now. Stock contractors didn't have any money, but they paid us a dollar a head to ride a bull and a dollar a head to ride a horse. I'd go on Friday night and ride a bull and a horse to make two dollars. Go back Saturday night and make two more dollars. And if he had one Sunday, why well, go back and ride two more? And that'll have six dollars. Go back to school, I had more money than anybody. <laughs> I could buy my girlfriend a candy bar and a bottle of pop. I think that is the reason she liked me so well. So you were recently honored by the Choctaw Nation for your service during World War II. How did that make you feel? Made me feel good. I hadn't been around them any, but uh, man, they was the nicest bunch of people you ever talked to. The chief, he was just as natural a human as you'd want. And uh, they treated me real well, and he's done a whole lot for the tribe. Yeah, I I was kind of proud to be a Choctaw at that time. I end my interviews with my favorite question. And with nearly a century on this planet and being a survivor of one of the bloodiest conflicts in recorded human history, I feel you might be able to give an incredible perspective. The question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? <laughs> well, what I'd like to tell them all <clears throat> that they were all humans and that there's not any reason why humans can't get along with each other. I don't understand why every one of them and us included, just wanting to fight somebody. I think that'd be what I'd tell them. Try to be, try to be neighbors. Try to be good people. Quit getting war on their mind. And I guess that's about enough. <laughs> Bill, this has been an incredible honor for me. This is one for the books, no question about it. Okay, thank you for having me. Sir, thank you. Thanks so much. All right. And just like Dr. Vol Nation, we come to the end of our interview with Bill Parker. I hope you found it as incredibly moving and powerful as I did. I also want to give a shout out to another hero in this interview. And now, while you didn't hear his voice, he was 100% there. I want to say thank you to Mr. David Rule, who acted as an interpreter between myself and Bill over the phone. He's an amazing man, and I am so glad he and I got to speak to each other. 
We still have so much amazing stuff coming up for release in June. Plus, and this is the part I know a lot of you are happy, we have plenty of Derek and Mindy's fun with movies to release as well in the next few days. Plus, her and I are going to go see the new Jurassic Park film on Thursday, so be sure to see our review before the weekend. So, on behalf of everyone at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you, be safe, be well, and you know what? Hug a veteran, regardless of what war they fought in. Right now, our veterans need our compassion more than you can ever imagine right now. Nosta, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.